You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Tony Wagner, who is at the Learning Policy Institute. He's also been at Harvard University and a number of other institutions, which we'll talk about. And he's also the author, most recently, of this memoir called Learning by Heart, an Unconventional Education, which helps to, I think it provides a wonderful backstory to help us understand how you got to where you are and some of the insights that you got both as a student and as a teacher. And he's also the co-author of this book right here called Most Likely to Succeed, Preparing Our Kids for the Innovation Era, as well as two other books, one called uh, Creating Innovators and the other one called Global Achievement Gap. Welcome, Tony. Thanks, Greg. Great to be with you. It's kind of ironic that someone who is one of the most influential theorists of, of education was basically uh, a dropout and <laughs> a horrible student. Now, I don't think that's coincidental, but most people who are considered horrible students and dropouts, they never actually get to a place where they can have the kind of impact that you've been able to have. Do you think that if you were going through high school today and the college today, that you would be able to get to where you are? Or would that necessarily be death knell to uh, a career in education? I think that's a great question. First of all, I'm not sure I would have finished college had I not found that small experimental program called Friends World College. As you know, I dropped out of college twice previously. And so it was only being given the opportunity to essentially design my own learning in the context of learning about other cultures, learning about social problems around the world, as well as solutions, that I was really highly motivated, finally, <laughs> to become a good student. And it was because of that very unusual undergraduate experience that I ended up getting a master's at Harvard. I think Harvard took a look at my transcript and said, whoa, we've never seen a transcript from a college like this. Let's give this guy a flyer. <laughs> so would that happen today? I'm very uncertain that it would. Very skeptical. Well, I think you're one of the, the major advocates of this idea that education is, is broken. The educational system is broken. And, and part of your argument is, is not that it's always been broken, but that it's a mismatch. In other words, we have an educational system that was designed for a different world, and it may have you know, been well-designed for that world, but the world has changed, and so we're kind of stuck. But I think that your argument is very different from most people who say that the education is stuck, so broken. A lot of people who say, oh, look look at how we're doing compared to South Korea. Look how we're doing compared to Singapore. Look how we're doing compared to China. And they think that we need to be more like them. And I think what you're saying is, to the extent that we're not as good as them, that might be the one redeeming thing <laughs> that, that, that we have in our system. If that's the metric, then maybe we should be doing worse uh, on that metric. So what exactly, if you were to say to someone in a single sentence, right, what is broken about the educational system? And you mean, and I think you lump K-12 and college in kind of the same bucket. I do. Let me slightly reframe your question, if I might. The traditional notion is that, that schools are failing and they need, quote, reforming. Now, the idea that even the language is you go back and reform what you already had. Whereas my view is that our education system is obsolete and needs reimagining. Why? Because our education systems were created at the dawn of the industrial era, particularly K-12. 
and we no longer live in the industrial era. In fact, we no longer live in what people talk about as the knowledge economy. Peter Drucker coined that term 50 years ago, Greg. Today, we live in the innovation era, and it, I believe, demands fundamentally different skills and dispositions from our kids, especially in a time when you can Google virtually any of the kinds of things that people ask on conventional tests. So I certainly don't think more testing is the solution to our problem. I don't think that Singapore or other Asian nations have the solution for us. Actually, the country that I most admire is their education system is Finland, but that could be another conversation. Yeah. And so you walk a little bit through kind of the history of education. And, and I like how you described the sort of pre-19th century educational system as a Bible copying factory, right? That's sort of what the, a lot of the monasteries were doing. But then you talk about how in the 19th century, there was this thing called the, the Committee of Ten in, in 1893. And you talk about Horace Mann and, and how they imported some things from Europe. And it seemed like the people who were designing the educational system back then, they were operating from first principles. They, they were saying, hey, you know, we're here in the 19th century. We're here in the industrial age. We need to think about how to create kind of people who can work in factories on the one hand as kind of manual laborers. And then also the people who are fundamentally in the, in the knowledge factory, manipulating figures and, and so forth. And so tell us a little bit about how did that kind of committee of 10 come about and were they really being creative? Were they thinking from first principles? Were they doing the kind of thing that we should probably be doing a new constitutional convention around education? If you think back to that era, Greg, it was a time where many people were coming off the farm in search of factory work, and they weren't prepared for that work. At the same time, we had large numbers of immigrants come into the country with the same problem. They weren't prepared for work, nor were they prepared for citizenship. They did not have even basic literacy skills. So the factory model of schooling was designed to solve the problem of creating workers for the factories. In a sense, it's really that simple. The economic tail has always wagged the, the education dog, if you will. And so you could, I don't want to be too hard on those old white men because they were 10 old white men. But they were solving what they thought were the problems of that era. And there's a lot of wealthy industrialists associated with that effort, Andrew Carnegie being the prime one. You know what we call credits in high school? We call them Carnegie units, Greg, after Andrew Carnegie. Why? Because he essentially bribed high schools to adopt this new approach by offering teachers insurance. And that's how we got TIAA CREF. So it's an interesting backstory. And so it seems like the teaching of teachers also adopted a similar model, right? Where when you wanted to become a teacher, and you talk about your experience at Harvard, where you were learning to become a teacher, and you described learning how to be a teacher as being not much better than, you know, learning anything else. And so maybe the, the reason why this type of education was perpetuated is because the teachers themselves never really learned how to question it. I think that's right. I think it does begin with teacher preparation. And when you talk at a bunch of educators, that's the model they learn. We teach in the ways that we have been taught in schools of education or anywhere else because we don't know anything differently. Part of my memoir is a description of 10 years of what I call educational R&D where I tried to deliberately and intentionally evolve a very different approach to teaching and learning as a young teacher, trying to become the teacher I wished I'd had. I had no models to go on. So I had to do it through a kind of trial and error. At least there are a lot more models out there that have been propagated. As you know, our film, the one that Ted Dintersmith produced, most likely to succeed, 
had really shows an outstanding model. We didn't have films like that back then. We had Summerhill, the book by A.S. Neal. That's about all we had. You describe an experience where you did get some kind of idea of what it might be like. And this was when you went to a summer camp called Mowgli. And there you, you learned how to chop and, and hew wood. And this experience, which is not something we would consider a good college preparation normally, was one that was transformative in your life. And you've only found out later that the man who taught you to chop wood was, in fact, a very sophisticated and highly educated kind of theorist of, of education. Was that sort of the seminal experience in your life? It helped you to realize that there is another way of learning? There were two really important experiences in camp, actually three if you count just exposure to nature, being outdoors, learning all kinds of camp practice, activities, boating, swimming. But first of all, as you recall, I spent an entire summer studying with a Cherokee Indian who was also an outstanding artist by the name of Wampanaya, otherwise known as James West. And the reason that was important was because, in a sense, he gave me a way of thinking about the way of being in the world spiritually that was very different from my Episcopalian background, which I had left behind as, as quickly as I could. You know, it was a Native American kind of perspective and sort of exposure to culture that was incredibly valuable and important to me. But then the description of which you speak was one where this man, Colonel Elwell, first of all, the context of the camp is you have to earn ribbons or what the scouts call badges, merit badges, right? That's how you get ready to become a more senior member of the camp. You earn your badges. And it's very rigorous. It's very performance-based. You have to meet certain criteria. You have to have, for example, with a camping badge, you got to have content knowledge. You got to have real skills, you like navigation skills. You got to be able to lead a trip. You got to be able to do a solo overnight. So with only very minimal equipment. So it's quite performance-based. And for whatever reason, I chose an activity that no one else in the camp was doing, which was to study with this old man. He was 70-something by then and to earn my axemanship ribbon or merit badge, if you will. And I had to learn to sharpen an axe. I had to learn to carry it safely through the woods. And then every afternoon I went into the woods with him and I had to learn to fell trees and I wasn't great on a bell curve. So if the tree didn't fall in the right place, he would stop me and say, okay, now what did you learn from this? What will you do differently next time? So it was all trying to meet a certain performance standard. And then once I had felled the requisite number of trees, I then had to cut them up into bite-sized bits and then split them. So it was a process of over two summers that I worked with him. And then when I went back to visit the camp, Greg, to kind of refresh my memory, I guess it was three years ago in June now, I was talking with the director and I was mentioning my connection to this gentleman, Colonel Alwell, and he said, Surprisingly, he said, would you like to read his dissertation? And I went, what? Turns out he too had gone to Harvard. He too had earned a doctorate there in 1925. I read his dissertation and it was like I was reading a chapter from my own book in the sense where he said that industrialism is destroying education. It is only geared to the very, very few who are going to college. It's not teaching anyone any real skills and we need to reimagine it. That was 1925. So you have to wonder, what else did the colonel teach me in the woods besides axemanship? I don't know. Yeah, so I think, you know, sometimes people talk about the disappearance of 
things like shop and they talk about the disappearance of say vocational tracks and and in other countries they have vocational tracks and so that criticism you'll often hear that what people are learning in their k-12 through and college education is not helpful in certain occupations but i think you're making a much broader point which is that even if you plan on going into an occupation that is ultimately will require a huge amount of of education whether you want to be a lawyer or a doctor a professor, the the content is not the, necessarily the most important thing. Whether you learned it by chopping wood or whether you maybe learned it by doing something else, it was really learning at a much, much deeper level. In the 21st century, content knowledge still matters. In a world where Google knows everything, it's a different kind of content that matters. Skills matter more, I argue, in the innovation era, and motivation matters most. What do I mean by motivation? Perseverance, tenacity, self-discipline, self-regulation, all these things are essential to know and to learn to be successful at anything in life, whether it's being a good dad or a good lawyer. So yeah, I completely agree that there are certain things one can learn that are have nothing to do with the content of a particular discipline and everything to do with dispositions and skills. And so that's part of what I learned in the woods with the Colonel. I learned to persevere. I learned to, to gut it out. And so one of the things that you point to in, in the book, Most Likely to Succeed, you talk about how creativity, how we're born with curiosity, we're born with, with creativity, and we progressively have it squeezed out of us. And I think others like Alison Gopnik have made this point. And you pointed to, uh, there's a standard creativity test that you can give to people. And I, I think it shows a direct negative correlation with age. And so is, is this purely due to the educational system or is this just, could this be seen as, wouldn't some people say, well, that's just getting mature. That's just getting old. You learn stuff and then- you Let me put, put it, it in practice. a slightly simpler form without referencing the creativity questionnaire. The average five-year-old asks 100 questions a day and nearly every child that age thinks of himself or herself as an artist. I know because I have four grandchildren who reminded me of this, but then something happens. We call it school. What happens in school? Fewer and fewer think of themselves as creative in any way. It's something that happens off there in the corner in a niche for just a few kids. And increasingly, kids become obsessed with getting the right answer rather than asking their own questions. You don't have to take a creativity test to see this. You see it every day in classrooms, Greg. Kids aren't asking questions. They don't have time. They're not encouraged. If it's a question, it will this be on the test or how much does this count towards my grade, which is what we're teaching in school. Now you contrast that with the world of innovation, which is what I did in the book, Creating Innovators. And what you find is that in all innovators whom I have ever met or interviewed around the world, no matter how old they are, have one thing in common. They're curious, they're deeply curious and not just about what it is they're fiddling with, but they're curious about the world. They're curious about all kinds of things. So part of what I have come to understand is that the innovation era prizes and rewards curiosity. And it's something that every kid, as we know, begins life with until it's schooled out of them. Now, you describe a scene from your childhood where you learned how to assemble a, a transistor radio. And, and you said, why couldn't everything at school be like this? And I went to Montessori school and uh, went through third grade, which was, you could only do it through third grade back when I was a kid. And I experienced this transition when I went to regular school at fourth grade. I was like, <laughs> what, what, like what is this? This is, this is a complete waste of time, right? Why, is it, why am I here? 
and I did everything I could to just read the book under the desk or do something else and wait for the day to end so I could start learning something when I left the classroom. And so there have been alternative approaches to education that have existed for a while. And, and there have been people who have pointed out the problems with the conventional educational system. And so why is it that those alternative techniques and objectives get, get squeezed out? Particularly when, as you point out, recruiters and companies are always saying, you quote Eric Schmidt, saying what the kind of people we need are creative innovators, not content memorizers or, or grade chasers. And so how do we explain the continued emphasis on this abstract content knowledge and proficient test taking? What's the explanation for this? And why is it that we're even, and you mentioned even that we've doubled down on it even in the last 20 years and really emphasized it even more. Well, first of all, back to Montessori. It's interesting because I, in researching creating innovators, I came across a Wall Street Journal article called The Montessori Mafia. And a study had uncovered the fact that many of the leading innovators from Julia Channel to Jeff Bezos to Jimmy Wells to the co-founders of Amazon had all gone to Montessori schools and credited the Montessori experience with having developed their curiosity, imagination, and so on. So I think it's no accident that you went to Montessori school. I sent all three of my kids to Montessori as well. But your deeper question, I think, is an important one. Why have we not changed? I think, again, it partly goes back to the fact that teachers teach in the way they, with they, the way they have been taught. Number one, parents want their kids to go to the schools that look like the one they went to or the one they wish they had gone to because it's all they know. They don't know anything else. And education being a deeply conservative and conserving kind of culture, you're not gonna take big risks or big leaps. There's no incentive to do that in education. We don't have an R&D capability in education. We don't have education labs. John Dewey set one up at the University of Chicago a century ago, but it's not there any longer. So there's nobody developing or very few people developing in the spotlight new ideas and testing them out. Now, I would argue that's what some charter schools are doing, and that's their real value, but they're not well-known. They're few and far between. And so I think that's part of the problem. Nobody knows any better models. Now, here, this is the other half of the equation, though, I think. I fault business leaders got on board with accountability in the late 20th century and no child left behind. It was all business-driven race to the top as well. Business leaders had been very quiet about education in the last decade or so. They know No Child Left Behind has failed them totally. It's not given them better prepared workers, but they have been reluctant to engage in these kind of civic-based discussions. They said, keep the nose to the grindstone and do not want to sort of get involved. And you think that's what's really unfortunate and what needs to change. We could probably work backwards from there. So if you've got recruiters that are picking people out of college based on certain criteria, and then those colleges will recruit people out of high schools based on certain criteria, and then it flows all the way down. And you highlight that there are people who go to kindergarten and, and the kindergarten instructors are trying to you know, prepare them for, the, for this end game. One would think that if there was sufficient pressure at the back end, it would kind of flow back. And as you point out, a lot of these schools, they claim to be focused on helping people to succeed in the modern economy. They claim to be successful in getting people these jobs, and that's one of the reasons why they're pushing STEM. But you point out that STEM knowledge isn't necessarily correlated with 
with success in, in the business world or becoming a better citizen. Is it really that at the recruiting stage that there's this problem? Because people's once they're in the workforce for a little while, their true colors are revealed. And the people who are creative innovators are more likely to rise to the top in a lot of these organizations. Well, I think one of the problems is the risk aversion in HR in these companies. As somebody once said to me whom I was interviewing, no head of corporate recruiting ever got fired for recruiting somebody from Harvard. <laughs> in other words, they're risk averse too. And they just assume, as Google did initially, by the way, that's a really interesting story. Google assumed that if you went to an Ivy League school and you had high test scores and a high GPA, of course you're going to be smart and do well in the innovation economy. As you probably know, along came Laszlo Bach, senior VP of People Operations in 2013, did the research and discovered that all of the indices that they had been using for hiring were, quote, worthless, unquote, his words. He went on to say the skills you need in the innovation economy bear no relationship to the skills you need in highly competitive academic environment. So Google's been a, a leader and an outlier, but there are more and more companies today who are saying, in effect, no, we don't need somebody with a BA. 15% of Google's new hires back in 2013 did not have a BA. 50%, three years later, 50% of Apple's new hires didn't have a BA degree. So I think there's a growing list of companies that in fact say, are saying BA optional, and we're going to find other ways to assess talent and skill. Mm -hmm. So do you think part of the problem that kind of goes from top to bottom is this idea that if you can't measure it, then we're not going to spend time cultivating it or because we don't have a way of evaluating success. And so I think you liken it to the the drunk and the lamppost, we can measure things, SAT scores and so forth. And so we're going to emphasize the things that we can measure because everyone needs to be evaluated at some point, whether they're institutions or HR or teachers or uh, administrators, they all need to have some benchmark that they should be chasing after, right? Yes, that is exactly the question though. What is the best way to assess quality of work? Instead of being what I call data-driven, which every school and most corporations are, I urge that we become more evidence-based. How do you know if somebody has a good character? There's no data for that, and yet it's vital. It's incredibly important. One of the things that I've worked on with colleagues is a new organization, a new nonprofit called the Mastery Transcript Consortium, mastery.org. And we're developing an entirely different kind of mastery-based transcript. Think a collection of merit badges for graduation from high school, some required, some elective, all documented in a student's digital portfolio. So you'll click on the competency, say this, a competency in the scientific method. You click on that and you'll go to the student's portfolio where you see evidence of the experiment they developed and then analyzed and then the findings. So I believe we do have an alternative to the simplistic notion if it can't be computed, it doesn't count. It was Einstein who said, what counts cannot always be counted. It's going to be a very difficult uphill challenge to get you know, companies to not be data-driven. Even Google, in their recruiting and hiring, they, they abandon certain presuppositions, but they did not abandon the idea of being uh, data-driven. Can, can I just correct one thing? When I talk about evidence, that includes data. So let's be really clear. But it's both quantitative and qualitative evidence. So. Google now today in the hiring process doesn't ask for your transcript, doesn't tell them anything, doesn't ask for your test scores, doesn't tell them anything. 
What do they do? They use structured interviews with multiple people asking for evidence of what an applicant has done. So that's a different kind of data and not readily quantifiable, but using what's called inter-rater reliability, you've got seven people interviewing the person, they're getting together, they're comparing notes, and that's how they're making their decisions. Yeah, and I think you talk a little bit about how you could make that comparable across different evaluators, because I think that seems to be the big challenge, is that if you don't have a standardized test, then you're introducing human judgment. And people are fundamentally concerned that human judgment could be biased. But this year, the University of California said that they would no longer use the SAT for admissions and that they would evaluate each student based on a more detailed set of criteria. Now, what a lot of people are concerned about is that this just means, oh, okay, you just pick the people that you like, the people that resemble you and the people who share your interests and the people. And so you're basically handing off a lot of discretionary power to folks who sit at the different bottlenecks. How would you, I think you offered some ways of potentially addressing this concern. Do you think this is too much of it? Do you think people are too suspicious and too distrustful of kind of decision makers? I think it's a fair question. And I think any of these kinds of decisions demand transparency and also do not rely on the sole discretion of it, of, of a single individual. Too many opportunities for capriciousness, arbitrariness, as you point out. That's why at Google, to be hired, you go through at least seven interviews. And so I think that in a sense, that's a model that you have a greater reliability through multiple views of the same data or the same evidence, if you will, whether it's a digital portfolio or a structured interview. Now, here's the interesting thing. More than half of all colleges and universities were test optional this year including University of California, but also Harvard. University of Chicago has done away with all standardized tests, arguably the most academically competitive school in the country. Now, the interesting thing that we know is that among the most highly competitive schools, the percentage of minority who applied was up 40%. Now, what will really be interesting to see is how well they do. We know from earlier experiments, they're going to do just fine. Even though the criteria for admitting them were different, they will do fine because the admissions criteria rarely lines up, in fact, with what is actually needed to perform. When we say that people will do fine, how do we measure that? Because a lot of times you're trapped in a situation where when you're trying to evaluate the success of these experiments, the only kind of off-the-shelf measurements we have for success are the ones that are the wrong ones. So if we're trying to figure out whether a high school program works, we say, well, oh, look, it worked because it increased test scores or it increased admission to, to universities. And those are precisely the things that are, are the wrong metrics that we should be looking at. Do we have a better way of measuring out outcome variables? Longitudinal data. Let me give you two examples. Uh, high Tech High is this, the high school that we profile. Actually, it's a whole network of charter schools with 6,000 kids, K-12, plus their own graduate school of education. That's the school we profile in the in film most likely to succeed. How did they measure success? First of all, Stanford took more of their graduates in the year that I studied them than any other non-legacy high school even though their test scores were average to non-existent. Very few of the kids at High Tech High took advanced placement courses. The school didn't offer, kids might take the test anyway, but the school didn't offer any APs. Nevertheless, large numbers got into Stanford. But the important number, Greg, is what happened four years later. To all of their, 100% went to college. 
And by the way, it's two-thirds minority and 50% poverty, the school. So two-thirds minority, 50% poverty, 100% go to school. How many are there four years later? The attrition rate among minorities in college is about 65 to 70% nationwide. The attrition rate four years later from high tech high, 86% of the kids were, had either graduated or were still in school. Now that's one data point. Now another one, a rigorous study done at University of Michigan Law School using alternative admissions policies a number of years ago that in effect put aside test scores and encouraged minorities to apply much higher percentage of minorities. They studied their careers a decade later, whites against minorities, no difference. Test scores, huge difference in terms of admissions numbers, but in terms of actual achievement in the real world, no discernible difference. So the answer is longitudinal data. It's not a test score. A test score tells us almost nothing about the skills needed for work, learning, or citizenship. What tells us a great deal is performance over time. Yeah. So what we'd really like to do is have a database where we can look at these long-term outcomes and then map them back to variations in educational experiences. But is that variation being stomped out by No Child Left Behind and all this common core? I mean, if we don't have experiments going on in fairly large numbers, then even if we wanted to do this process of long longitudinal uh, assessment, it would be tough because there's just so much homogeneity, right? Yeah, and that's why I advocate really investing in what I call educational R&D educational research and development. Every school of education ought to have a lab school where they're teaching new state-of-the-art learning and teaching practices, not just lecturing about the research. Every school district, I think, should have its own laboratory school. Think of it as an in-district charter or school of choice that it uses for continuing professional development. We know that there's no innovation without investment in R&D. And I think that's exactly the problem we have in education. In fact, people's fears, fears of a more competitive job environment, fears of not getting a good job that pays good money, all of that is driving, and not only that, fear, of course, of bad test scores and negative press in the local paper with bad test scores. That's what's driving education today. It's very fear-driven and not any in any way significantly idea. I think you described the life of a student today as being one that is filled with, with anxiety and, and depression over achieving each of these little, these markers and progress markers that they're certainly not merit badges. They're way stations on the way to the traditional career path. And so what about you? I'm most interested in universities. I know that most about universities. And I think that because everyone's trying to get into universities, that sort of has an impact on K through 12. But you mentioned the negative effects of the U.S. News and World Report rankings. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and whether there could be competition in this space. Could we come up with a better system of evaluating university? And in particular, I think there are a couple of features of that U.S. News and World Report ranking. A lot of it has to do with research orientation of the university in addition to SAT scores. If you were to come up with a different evaluative system, what would it look like? Well, again, a great question. The, the problem at R01 universities, research universities, is there's almost an inverse relationship between the more R&D money a university has and the quality of teaching. Why? Because tenured faculty don't want to teach undergraduates at all. They want to do their research and they want to recruit and train just a few people who are going to help them do their research. 
That's how R1 universities work. And so how do you get there? You get tenure. How do you get tenure? By doing this narrow sliver of research that nobody has done before. It's, I think the incentives at R1 universities and in general at college is, are really perverse. They don't incent good teaching and they don't look at the outcomes in terms of employment. Very few. They're beginning to tout that now, percentage of graduates who leave with a job offer. Yeah, but what's the quality of that job offer? What do those recent graduates say three years later about how well prepared they are? We know a bit about that. They say, they didn't prepare me. I don't have any skills. And only that, I don't have a job that pays enough money for me to pay off my college debt. That's what the kids are saying, but we don't listen to them. U.S. News and World Report doesn't listen to the school kids, right? So I would start and flip it. You interview your recent graduates three to five years out, whether from high school or college, and you say, in what ways were you most well-prepared for what it is you're doing now? What ways were you least well-prepared? What would be your advice to teachers? What would be your advice to parents? So you start with the consumers and you do the same thing with employers. You say, well, this is what I did with a global achievement gap a decade ago. I said, how well-prepared is this workforce? What are the gaps? And that's what you highlight in the U.S. News and World Report, not the damn SAT score averages or the number, amount of money that's been received for research. You argue this is a gigantic fraud. And if we think about the SAT kind of test prep business and the AP test prep business, and, and you highlight how it's a prisoner's dilemma, because I took all these tests back before there really was an industry. And I don't remember, I didn't take any prep classes or anything like that, but now it's, it's a gigantic business, not quite as big as it is in, say, in China and, and Korea, the test prep business, but it is an enormous business. And if a student kind of checks out and opts out of the whole system, then their prospects of admission to top tier universities is impaired. At least maybe this year it'll be different, but historically it has been impaired, right? That's the question. Can we change that? Because those admissions criteria dominate the high school curriculum and prevent innovation. That's why we're working to develop a mastery-based transcript. Now, 14 high schools piloted our transcript this year. It was a beta year, first year. Sent the transcript to 160 colleges, and every kid got in, including to schools like Harvard, Stanford, and all of the major state university systems. So in other words, there is some evidence that these kinds of innovations can free high schools to create a very different kind of curriculum, more mastery-based, and also still enable kids, students, to go to really good schools without the kind of weights around their ankles, if you will, of having to do this test prep, which, by the way, is highly class-biased. I think that the important thing to point out, too, is one reason why University of California, University of Chicago, and others are dropping these tests is because, yes, they're gamed. They're gamed by families who have money. That's the real issue here. And so they're highly class-based. If you've got money for a tutor, you're going to do better. No doubt about it. Do you think this new, if this is the new kind of report card and portfolio that students are going to have to present, doesn't this also require a new type of teacher? Because this teacher will have to participate in the assembly of these portfolios. And you describe a very different way of teaching. And it's the kind of teaching that it's not easy to take someone who has schooled in the traditional way of teaching even if they're a professional teacher, a research academic is a whole different story, but somebody who is schooled in the traditional way of teaching to become the coach rather than the teacher, this would require a lot of retooling. Is that something, can we? Yes, in a way, Mo, 
Most teachers have experienced a different approach, but they don't think of it as teaching. Think of the coach on the football field or any sports field. Think of the director in a performing arts program in a high school. They're coaching, and that's a different kind of teaching. So if we simply help people to understand, look, this translates to academics. You're going to coach students to higher performance standards, whether it's on the playing field, in the auditorium, or in the classroom. Same concept, exactly the same. You have to know your kids. You have to know your capabil their capabilities. You don't grade on a bell curve. You're trying to get everybody to a certain standard, a higher standard. Now, it would sure help if we had different ways of preparing teachers. What Finland did that's so interesting to me 45 years ago when they were an underperforming agrarian economy with a very mediocre education system, they said, we need to transform our education system if we want a different economy in the 21st century. But they didn't start with testing. They started with teacher preparation, requiring every teacher to earn a real master's degree. They closed down 80% of their schools of education, only kept open those that were associated with their eight best universities, and essentially required every teacher to have this five-year program that included a year-long mentorship with a real master teacher working in teams with other student teachers. Yeah. And I think it's not just teachers. It's also going to be recruiters. I once I met with a bunch of business school deans and a bunch of top-level executives from Wall Street, and we were talking about the things that we thought students ought to know, and they were talking about the things that they thought entry-level employees ought to know. And, and we were in perfect agreement, but then we, we realized that that's not what the kind of recruitment people were looking for. And it's also not what the kind of college, the employment placement people were coaching the, the students to put into their transcripts. So it seemed like the people who were actually making the decisions and doing kind of the dirty work, this was the way that they knew how to do it. They didn't have a better approach or a better toolkit to help them do what the principals really wanted them to do. The challenge is if we're going to get shaken out of our usual way of doing things at any of these levels, there has to be a sense of urgency, and that has to be created by leaders. Now, 25 years ago, bipartisanship in Congress created a sense of urgency around overcoming the achievement gap. That's why the No Child Left Behind legislation was bipartisan, and it, in part, was there trying to solve a real problem, which is the huge gap between our most disadvantaged students. Now, that gap has not closed one bit. The strategy was a total failure. So what we need now is a different kind of urgency. I mean, we think the only real problem we have in education are the kids, are the schools those poor disadvantaged kids go to. And that is a huge problem, but it's not our only problem. If we aspire only to bring those schools up to the standards of our good suburban middle-class schools, we're gonna leave all of our kids behind because this is the innovation era and we are fastballing behind in a lot of areas that matter a great deal. And one of the things we haven't talked about, Greg, which I'll just briefly mention, is the importance of educating for citizenship in the 21st century. Now, I would argue the skills for work, for learning, and citizenship have converged for the first time in human history. Whether it's critical thinking or collaboration or creative problem solving or communication skills, you need them in all of these domains. And now more than ever, we're going to need to find different ways to prepare kids for the real challenges of citizenship and especially the problem of digital literacy. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned the five habits of mind, and I think those are key, especially when you're being inundated with 
mass amounts of information and who constitutes an authority is in question. And that's in part due to technology. But you also mentioned technology and its impact on pedagogy. There's been a not quite the same kind of disruption that we've seen in, in other industries, but we've seen with MOOCs, we've seen with the flipped classroom, we've seen with kind of Khan Academy and Coursera and these other tools. They've all been efforts to change the way teaching is done and education is, is structured. And the pandemic has more or less pushed everybody toward the use of, of online tools. But it doesn't seem to have fundamentally changed teaching in any way. It seems like for most of these solutions, it's just take the lecture format and throw it onto a small screen, right? I think the one thing that's changed is that the failure of that approach to teaching has become more transparent, especially in parents who see how incredibly disengaged their kids are. And I'm hoping that creates an openness among both teachers and parents for a different conversation. Because there were those teachers who, instead of trying to lecture at their kids, would engage them in interesting and meaningful projects. And again, the parents saw the difference when kids were doing work worth doing, not busy work, not make work, and the difference in terms of their engagement was night and day. I think in the area of software engineering education, at least, which I know a little bit about, there has been quite a bit of disruption simply because the demand for people with these skills is so strong. So in that area, we've seen the use of merit badges instead of degrees, right? In, in that area, we've seen the ideas of project-based peer learning. Do you think that it, it's these non-credit institutions that might ultimately be the place where some of the new techniques will be experimented on and, and perfected simply because they don't have to worry about accreditation and they don't have to worry about funding and so forth? No question. There's a lot of movement now towards, you know, micro-credentials and badging. Google offers a six-month program that's popular. There are a number of other efforts like that. And there's no question that these accreditation institutions are often barriers to innovation. High Tech High started its own graduate school a decade ago because it couldn't find enough qualified graduates from well-known schools of education. It took them more than a decade to get certified. It was a very difficult and demanding process. And it doesn't have to be that way. I, there's a place for accreditation. I'm not arguing against that, but I think they've got to incent innovation. Yeah. And so do you think that those sorts of things might flow back to the mainstream education? Do we need a change in the kind of organizational and managerial structure. People are talking about charter schools and they say, well, if we just open things up to the market and we allow for kind of competition across these different schools, then, then sooner or later, the schools that figure out what works will wind up attracting the students and attracting the funding and so forth. But we've had private schools for a long time. And except for the few that you reference in your book and, and ones that you've been working with, it doesn't seem like Private schools offer a radically different approach to education. This private schools and charter schools, and there's a little bit of a difference that is important to understand. Private schools, they market their elitism. They market the fact that you're going to have a peer group that's going to be highly motivated and look just pretty much like you, if not in skin color, then in class, right? In financial background. And for years, private schools marketed the fact that they were good at getting kids into Ivy League schools and the name brand schools. Well, those days are gone because it's a worldwide competition now. And your chance of having a kid go from a private school straight into Harvard goes down every single year. 
So leave them aside for a minute. I think they're dinosaurs and they're going to have to adapt if they're going to survive. Charters, the problem is, yes, it's a free market, but nobody knows what anybody's selling. Parents don't make informed choices because they don't understand the different kind of products in the education marketplace. And these for-profit charters are criminal. They're absolutely criminal. Just taking money from kids for online learning, it doesn't really happen. But back to the original point, I think there is room for innovation, but it, I think it's going to be more driven by parents and young adults saying, hey, I can't afford college. It's ridiculous. And not only that, there is no real guarantee that if I go to college for four years and rack up 50 or $100,000 of debt, I'm going to get a better job. So I want an alternative. It's a majority of parents now who are saying there need to be alternatives to four-year colleges. So I think and hope it will favor our community college system and other kinds of approaches. Yeah, I think you, you highlight that there hasn't really been good research into the, the causal effect of a college education on career outcomes. There's just a correlation that everyone points to as the reason for going. Last question. We know that much of education takes place in the home and children who have a home that is that encourages curiosity and that, that encourages creativity will, will ultimately benefit those kids, irrespective of what their classroom experience looks like. How can parents embrace education in their homes? And if they can't change the schools that their, their kids go to, how can they create an environment that encourages creative problem solving at home? That's a great question. In my 2012 book, Creating Innovators, I not only interviewed young people who are highly successful innovators in their 20s, but I interviewed all their parents. And I interviewed younger parents who themselves had very innovation-driven jobs. And there were a number of themes that came out about what parents can do, and they limited screen time radically. They had Kids had fewer toys without batteries. Parents got them out of the house and into nature as much as possible. One mother told me, sometimes kids have to get bored in order to learn how to get unbored. So that was their philosophy. It wasn't there. They weren't helicoptering. They weren't there to entertain their kids. And if they were going to go on a vacation, they might say something like, what do you want to learn? What you, we're going to go on a vacation. We're going to go here. What is it you're curious about? And keep, in general, exploring children's curiosity and interests. One of the things that these parents did over and over again was support their child trying new things and then support their kids pursuing new passions no matter what they were. That was what was so interesting. Even when they were secretly afraid, oh my God, my daughter wants to be an artist. She's going to be living at home all her life and we should never allow this. But instead of doing that, they fixed a spare bedroom up into an artist studio for their daughter, who then went on to Google and went uh, many other things doing incredible design work. The best you can do, I think, as a parent is to have a conversation every night about what kids are curious about. Don't ask them what they did at school today. Just say, hey, what do you, what do you provoke your curiosity today? What question was on your mind today? Have them keep a question journal. Parents, teachers can do the same, where they write down the questions that interest them and periodically sit down with an adult, a teacher or a parent, and say, all right, what, which one of these do you want to learn more about? Do you want to explore? So there's a lot that parents can do. You're absolutely right, Greg. It's a critically important kind of, influence in, in a child's life. So whether you're a parent or a teacher or administrator or a recruiter or an HR or a boss, you should definitely check out Tony's work. Most likely to succeed, co-authored with Ken Dinnersmith 
and also uh, Global Achievement Gap, Creating Innovators, fantastic book, and also Learning by Heart. It was great to learn about your childhood and uh, your educational experiences over time. Thanks so much, Tony, for joining me. Thank you, Greg, and thank you for your great questions. It was fun to talk. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.